Hello, everybody. Hello, everyone. Very, very, thank you very, very much for joining the podcast and live stream today. Let's get things going. All righty. Hello, everybody. Thank you for tuning into the Freedom First live stream and podcast. Today, we find ourselves getting closer and closer to an authoritarian state. Freedom's heart reading is getting, it's getting closer to flatlining. Many elected officials are suggesting tracking the general population through mass microchipping and praising globalism as a solution to prevent collapse. When people know and understand that the government can interfere and take advantage of your private life through the internet and are okay with it, as long as they feel safe, we have a problem. Today, we have the pleasure of taking, talking to a man who rejects that and is fighting to prevent that. He is a Second Amendment supporter. He is a libertarian, the libertarian candidate for congressman uh, out of Western New York. Please help me in welcoming Dan Whitmer, uh, Dwayne Whitmer. Excuse me. Sorry, Dwayne. How are you? That's all right. Good. How are you doing today? I am doing well. Perfect. Uh, so, so the beginning of this month, I just want to start with this, and I, I think I, I caught on to this a little bit late. The beginning of this month, um, speaking from the Wegmans Conference Center in Chile, New York, the governor suggested that he would support enforcing pen penalties for people who aren't wearing masks in public. And as libertarians, you and I both are, I believe, very adamant about speaking for for civil liberties, for the First Amendment, for the Second Amendment, and you know the right to not wear a mask if you so choose in public areas. Uh, what is your take on something like that? So the problem you have in the libertarian movement we're going to hit a pretty hard question that's going to offend a lot of libertarians all in one statement here. Sure. Um, we have a problem. The libertarian philosophy struggles with marketing because we don't hammer emotion like the progressives on the right and left do. Um, if we pass security blanket measures, so uh, wearing a mask is... I do it sometimes if I'm in a crowd. I, I don't if I'm not because it sucks breathing inside of one. But it's a security blanket move pushed by the politicians to make the people that when they go outside, they can feel safer. They can feel like they're not getting it. Uh, not acknowledging cross-contamination. Not acknowledging that if I have it, I already have it. The mask didn't stop it. Not acknowledging that if someone has it and they're breathing on me or touching the stuff I'm touching and I touch it, it's there. I take the mask off. Now I'm touching my face because the mask is on and now I'm contaminated. It, it's not. It leaves a lot of questions to be answered. But what mm -hmm. they're doing is they're making it so the average person can say, skiddly D, I'm safer. And it's kind mm -hmm. of eerily similar to gun control, where people truly believe if we ban assault rifles, there will never be a school shooting. Yes. Um, the security blanket, security, I call them security blanket because when you're a child and you're afraid of the monster under your bed, you pull the covers over your head. As an adult, you realize the monster is still going to just destroy you. But, mm -hmm. but as a child, you somehow feel safer with that blanket over your head. It's kind of eerily similar to what politicians do today. Right. So, um, unfortunately, why we lose that battle is because uh, the, 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 the progressive Dems can say, if you don't wear a mask, you're killing my grandmother. Mm -hmm. And um, factually incorrect, but not the point. Um and then the progressive Republicans can say, if we don't build the wall, an immigrant is going to kill your grandmother. Um, sure, the libertarian sure. philosophy appeals to rational common sense and, mm -hmm. and kind of intelligent thought, 
whereas our opponents uh, resort to the emotional triggering. How do I trigger your emotions in 13 seconds so I can right. look like I'm saving you without and actually doing anything? I think, and, you know, I'm sorry to cut you off there, but I think oh, no, you're you hit, I hit an important point when we have this reactionist culture that we have. Um, and I may, I've said it before in the past that I don't know why God chose to burst me into a generation that is so offended and has such a thin skin. And I'm not just saying the left is like that. I mean, the right is like that on certain issues as well, like the wall you said. Yeah. And as yeah. a party in the Libertarian Party, I mean, uh, we, we generally speaking, and we do have our radicals, just like the left has the radicals and the right has the radicals. But, you know, generally speaking, we are very, very open to debate. We are very cool headed and we are willing to discuss issues. There are people in our party who 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 want the wall. And then there's people in our party who want universal basic income. So you have, you know, but the thing is, we have the ability to debate about it. We have the the. Um, I guess the skill as a party as a whole to sit back and say, huh, is that really a good idea? Should we really be doing that? And instead of, you know, picking somebody and saying, oh, just because this guy said this, it's a great idea. We say, well, we think for ourselves, we're very independent. We come to our own independent conclusions. And I think that's what as a party, first and foremost, we stand for is the freedom of speech, the freedom or the tying into the freedom of speech. We understand it's an American value to listen to one another, to listen to one another's differences and then find a solution amongst ourselves rather than saying this side is right and this side is wrong. Right. And and yeah, we're a big tent. But the reason what brought me to the Libertarian Party, and, and I keep hammering people when I talk about this, mm -hmm. and this is another reason where libertarians tend to struggle. I'm not the average libertarian. Um, I, I kind of was an average voter, an average person. I didn't have a lot of policy ideas. I wasn't a policy wonk. A lot of libertarians will talk policy for hours, and if you don't, you're not a real libertarian. Um mm -hmm. I, I wasn't really that. I had a couple things. I was pro-gun because I grew up in a farming community. And so firearms were used to hunt and put food on the table. They were used to protect your livestock and crops from predators. They weren't a, 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 they weren't a cool thing to have. They weren't a fashion accessory. They weren't a hobby. They were a tool, just like a hammer, a screwdriver. It, it was used, the firearm was used to like, you know, do your job. Mm -hmm. And so I was pro-gun just because I grew up around them. I was mm -hmm. anti-war because growing up in a small community, a low-income area, um, a lot of my friends and family went overseas, and when they came back, they weren't the same, whether physically or mentally. And I realized at a young age that um, the politicians, some some politicians are veterans, so I can't say all, but a lot of these politicians aren't really sending themselves over. They're not going over there. It's it's you know my friends and family. So I kind of became anti-war, and those were my two real policy points. Um, so I floated around a lot because, you know, the Republicans are anti-war when a Democrat's in office. The Democrats are anti-war when a Republican's in office. And we're still facing never-ending war. So really, if they were anti-war, the wars have been over by now. But they're, they're both, you know, they're, they're doing the uh, sports team kind of partisan politics. And so that's kind of when I joined the LP, one thing I struggled with is I went to a few meetings. And I met other libertarians and I thought to myself, I'm not interested in having an hour and a half long conversation on why the income tax is an illegal tax and it shouldn't be there. And yeah. if yeah. what we're doing to market people to vote for us, they may agree with us. They're not voting for us. Sure. You know, you go to hammer common ground, find what makes these people tick, 
what upsets you? Why are you mad? This is why our party's here. And the Libertarian Party is a great party to do that because at the end of the day, we're saying, being in politics, I've now met a lot of politicians. They're not the brightest people in the world. Let's be honest. I mean, these guys can't cut it. The reasons why they're politicians is because they can't cut it in the real world. Yeah. So yeah. Um, we're not being run by the most competent, intelligent people. Those people are out inventing things. They're running companies. They're succeeding kind of over here in the, in the real world. And they're buying the politicians to make their lives easier. And so meeting a lot of people, I don't really want to be in charge of people's lives because I understand my shortcomings. Mm -hmm. Financially, I'm a great accountant. I know the tax code right and, you know, uh, front and back. But as far as other things, I don't really want to be in charge of your life because I don't know how to be in charge of your life. And that's mm -hmm. where the Libertarian Party can really hammer saying, why are we putting people in office to run our lives when they're, they're terrible at it? And it's more about, you know, cutting their scope, cutting what they can do, uh, letting local government have more control because, you know, that's your town, that's your area, and, and kind of cutting the scope of federal government. And it's really not hard to do if you think about it. There's a lot of ways you can actually do it pretty simply, um, but it involves a lot of money and a lot of thought and a lot of kind of common sense. And, and a lot of people just don't want to think for themselves anymore. Yeah. yeah. Um, something I'm seeing not just in New York state, but also in across the nation. And, and it's unsettling when you have billionaires like Bill Gates stepping in and governor Cuomo's like, Ooh, that's a great idea. Let's, let's do that. That, that bothers me. Yep. But you know, I'm running for assembly that that's to speak on behalf of my district and on behalf of New York state. And you are running for Congress. Yes. Um, so you have a much, you have a much wider scope of who you're going to be able to reach and talk to. Yeah, on, on the federal level, um, what I am seeing in in Congress and in the uh, U.S. Senate is an overwhelmingly tribalism culture, yes. where you have uh, you, even if the president says something that you disagree with, some congressman will say, "Okay, I am in that party. I have to agree with him," and yes. vice versa. The Democrats will say, "You know, even though I do agree with the president, I am." not in his party, I have to completely disagree with him. And especially with this, it's almost like a, like a very, uh, I don't know, it's idiotic when you have a, a president that, that says one thing and uh, the Democrats are completely against him. And then the next month later, they say he doesn't do enough. Um, where, where would you find, where do you stand on the, uh, the lockdowns? Where do you stand on the, 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 I guess the precautions you would have suggested as a congressman so to help curb this pandemic. The, the problem that you run into is that this actually all could have been solved a long time ago. And, and in, in a libertarian society, I don't think it gets this bad. Hmm. Uh, a couple things accounted for this mass issue. Number one, it was in China where the, the virus originated. Um, they have a very progressive anti-freedom of speech, anti-speaking uh, out against the establishment type uh, government. So when whistleblowers over there knew there was something wrong, they risked their lives by speaking out, which allows it to go haywire in China. And so once it finally gets here, the issue we have is the federal government cannot react and, and respond in a quickly and timely fashion. You saw it after Katrina, too. Um, you know, when, when uh, Kanye said George Bush hates black people, it wasn't that. It was just the federal government cannot respond 
in a timely fashion. And so when it finally came here, the issue you had was um, the FDA regulations. So what happens is Big Pharma uh, donates to congressmen who make uh, for your, again, here's the progressive agenda, where they trigger your emotion. If there's not stringent testing for these things, for your safety, you might get a bad pill. So we need more stringent and, and regulations and testing, which costs more money. So, you know, smaller businesses struggle to send stuff to the FDA for approval. Larger companies can. Uh, Big Pharma keeps donating to their congressmen. I think 495 of the 535 people in the House get donations from Big Pharma. It's not a red or blue issue. It's an us versus them issue. And so they keep buying their congressmen to pass laws to make it harder for people to break into the market, which allows them to corner the market. So when this first came over here, there were no tests. I couldn't go on Amazon which is the you know biggest distribution network, the fastest distribution network in the world, and get a test kit. So when it started, I couldn't get tested. I had no idea what was going on. So there was a test kit apparently pending, and, and I think it finally got pushed through, but it was pending after it, for like 55 days. So for two months, we're waiting for this test kit to come through, and now there's test kits, but they're manufactured, and it's hard to manufacture them for certain reasons. And so cutting the regulations that would allow the test kits to be implemented in the first place would have been a, a, a massive win because then someone can test and say, oh, okay, I have it, I'm going to self-quarantine, or I don't have it, I can go out. So it eliminates a lot of the cause to you know, shut things down and shut business down. Um, as far as the shutdown, it's, 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 this is hard to explain, but the shutdown, as a politician... I, I'm going to say things that are going to contradict, and, and I understand that. As a politician, I understand why they implemented the shutdown. And that's because the same reason why, as an accountant, it's hard to prove fraud. Here is why. If I shut everything down, I can say, hey, X amount of people died. If we didn't shut down infinite people would have died. We were better off by shutting down. There is no control group to use. You can use Sweden, I think Belarus. Two countries didn't shut down. I think Sweden and Belarus didn't shut down. They're doing better than the U.S. But here's the problem. Just like when it comes to fiscal and economic policy, you can't compare apples to oranges. So you'd have to compare New York to New York. You can't do that because there is no non-shutdown in New York in this timeline. So they win no matter what. No matter what, they trigger your fear by saying, hey, if we didn't shut down, millions would have been dead. It would have been Mad Max. Mm -hmm. You can't prove the alternative. So they win. It's the equivalent of this. And this is kind of what we're, we're stuck dealing with. It would be like if I went to your house tonight and stood outside of your house all night and said, hey, man, you didn't get kidnapped last night. Um, that's because I stood outside of your house. Well, what do you mean? Well, you, you didn't get kidnapped. I kept you safe last night because you didn't get kidnapped. I stood outside your house. I'm a hero. I did this. This is me. I'm, I'm great. And you say, well, I've never been kidnapped. Yeah, well, now you haven't because of me. I've been standing outside your house. You didn't get kidnapped. I kept you safer. Well, you can't prove that you would have been kidnapped because... 
no one's going to say, hey, man, I was going to kidnap you last night, but I saw Dwayne standing there. There's no control, right? There's no control. So in this shutdown, and this is why he does it, he has nothing to lose. Now, because now the fiscal and economic ruin that's coming, higher overdoses, higher domestic assaults, higher uh, cases of child abuse, uh, suicide risk or suicides uptick, uh, businesses going bankrupt. That is going to happen at a later date, or it's not going to be linked. If someone dies because of Corona, they died because of Corona. If mm -hmm. someone died from suicide, that's not as publicized. If a business goes out of business, that's not as publicized. If you know a man beats his wife, that's not as publicized. Corona deaths are. Corona deaths so are even, huge. Yeah. Um, and I so, think we touched on something there, and I, I hate to cut you off, but I, I feel like I need to touch on it. Um, the, I, I, I jokingly said this, but there is a lot of truth behind it. I, I don't, I just like you, I don't know what the right answer was when it came to the lockdowns, when it came to how we're going to curb this, but a lot of people are forgetting the, the initial, uh, the initial reason why the government, New York, uh, United States, you, you name it, locked everybody down was to flatten the curve, not to get rid of the virus, but to flatten the curve. Right. And the, the longer and longer we keep people inside, the more and more people are not going to take this seriously. And I jokingly said it earlier, it was probably in retrospect, a bad idea to... <laughs> as a response to a super virus, they, they kind of had this idea like, well, let's just make everybody stay at home and live a sedentary, sedentary lifestyle Which and ruin their, health. ruin their health. Because if you go outside, you need vitamin D, you need vitamin D for the sun. You need physical activity. You need the social interaction to nourish your anxiety and depression. If you have it. Um, and you're like, you said, by the way, please appreciate, I have small children. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I do, but, um, I don't own the whole house, but you know, you, you need to have the social interaction, you need that social nourishment because you're seeing increased suicide rates. You're seeing more domestic violence and, and you can't just expect the masters to feed you. You can't just expect the government to pay you 1200 bucks for the next five weeks or $3,400 or whatever it is, or $2,000 every month. For a lot of people, that would be a godsend. But for you know people who are in the middle class, who are working, who have car payments, who have a mortgage to pay, who have medical bills, who have all this other stuff, it all adds up, and it sometimes it just doesn't cut it. So as you were, I, I kind of lost my point there at the end. But what no, I'm trying to say no is, problem. you know, as you as you, if you tell people to stay inside, yep. you you ruin your you ruin their health. You ruin their financial status, so now they can't afford to nourish their health because they don't have the money to pay for their uh, pharmaceuticals and the treatment that they usually get. And I just want to touch on uh, very quickly, or or as long as we'd like, <laughs> hospitals in upstate New York. I don't know what it is like in western New York, but are hospitals at full capacity there? Because in New York City, sure, they're being overrun, but because we have restrictions on who can go into the hospitals right now, some hospitals have had to furlough their staff. And this isn't just janitors. This is doctors, nurses, uh, EMTs, you name it. They're furloughing these employees because they can't afford to keep them because they're not doing nearly as much business as they used to. Whether or not you want to call it elective surgery, no, they're not, they're not at the capacity that they're used to. They're not, they don't have as many customers as you would say. Yep. What's it like in Western New York? 
Similar. I actually understand though. So the, the reason why that's happening, and I talked to a nurse friend of mine and, and she kind of made a good point about it is because of cross-contamination. So mm. um, certain departments are being sent home because uh, they don't want, you know, they don't want the nurse that's doing your surgery. Like if I'm in the trauma ward, if I'm in the surgery ward, they don't want the nurse in the surgery ward uh, doing open heart surgery and potentially be, you know, um, subject to having coronavirus and you're giving it to the patient, or you're giving it to the doctor and, and stuff like that. So they're, they're trying to segregate departments. So I get that. And certain departments are being sent home for that reason. Um, the solution would have been at first, uh, quarantine the at risk, quarantine the elderly, yes, you know, and, and start there. Um, mm -hmm. Issue, issue, uh, warnings, issue, educational this is, things. This is kind of what I said in the beginning of all of this. Yeah, I, I said, have again. I have small children. Forgive me. Oh, they're, um, they're but, <laughs> uh, but keep the keep the sick home. Keep the elderly home. My wife is immunocompromised. She would definitely need to stay home. Mm -hmm. um, but generally speaking, you want to be able to let people go to work. Yes, and. And, and what the, the problem is, the, the, the issue you run into is unintended consequences. So here's an unintended consequence. And this is why you're seeing these, these protests. You, you, you shut everything down March 15th. Say, okay, you can get unemployment though. So people apply for unemployment the week of March 18th. Here we are in the second week of May. And I'm still getting calls from clients who haven't got unemployment. So they're now going on eight weeks of no income. And here's the issue. This wasn't an expected layoff. So I have friends that, hey, I had savings, but I blew it earlier going on vacation in February, not thinking I wasn't going to get paid for eight weeks. So you have the unintended consequence of the government's failure to respond where people aren't getting their unemployment. They're not bringing money in. They're seeing their savings dwindle. And people say, well, your rent's getting postponed. Great, your rent is, but I can't go to Walmart and buy groceries for my family and say, hey, my rent got postponed. I haven't got unemployment for eight weeks. You're going to postpone my grocery bill, right? right? No, your money's due right then. Yeah. So people are getting kind of antsy and afraid because they have to support their families. And so what you have is the other side is saying, you know, oh, you're putting the economy over my grandma. It's not the economy over your grandma, buddy. It's my family over your grandma. It's my family versus your family. And here's where we're in a slippery slope. And this is something that needs to be acknowledged. And both sides can need to acknowledge this. The people that are saying, number one, um, my grandma's more important than you making money for the capitalistic pigs. It's not necessarily that. I have clients that own their own business. They work for themselves. They're the sole provider of a family of four. By not allowing him to work, by shutting his business down and not allowing him to work, what you're saying is your fear of maybe your grandma getting sick means he can't make money and provide for his family. Mm -hmm. What you're actually saying is you care about your grandma. You don't care how he supports his family. Mm -hmm. So you're putting your family over his family, which is inherently selfish. But a, a lot of the left progressivism is greed, ignorance, and fear uh, wrapped as caring about others. Um, that's why you see a, a lot of the left progressives 
some of the stuff they push is, you know, well, I think everyone has a right to health care. Okay. I have left progressive friends that say that everyone has a right to health care. Great. They're the same ones that say, if you go to a reopen rally, you don't deserve health care. Yeah. Well, I thought yeah. everyone had a right to health care. Well, they don't because they're putting people at risk. Okay. So everyone has a right to health care until you decide they don't. Well, that's not a right. That's your feelings. That's, that's an issue. Everybody has a right to health care until they disagree with you. Right, right. But who makes who makes you the judge, jury, and executioner for where they, where they draw that line? Using your logic, if you're a, a, an at-risk uh, job, so if you're in the logging field, if you're in the oil fields, you don't deserve healthcare because you picked picked a high-risk occupation. If you're mm-hmm. elderly, hey, Grammy, you live for 95 years, you don't get a right to healthcare. You live too long. Or you know, if you're morbidly obese, you don't get a right to healthcare because you ate Cheetos your whole life. I don't know. Where do you draw that line? And so that's where it's that kind of laziness. They don't want to shop for their own healthcare. They don't want to do their own research. They want someone else to do it based on what they feel is right. You can't do that. Um, and so you're seeing a lot of that breakdown on that side. And so that's kind of where you're seeing the left versus the left versus right split is both sides are emotionally triggered by different things. One side's emotionally triggered by the death of their grandma and one side's emotionally triggered by the death of their friend's business. Um, both sides have logical and, and valid arguments and points to be made, but by furthering the divide, nothing's getting accomplished. Uh, we do need to have a discussion on, on a safe way to conduct yourself in public. For example, today, um, one of my friends, Mora, she's uh, one of my campaign volunteers. She's actually moving in with me. She got into UB. And um, her and her boyfriend moving in with me for the summer. We went to Lowe's to uh, we. I did a room for her. I tore out a carpet, put a rug down. She repainted. Um, she did a good job. It was fun. Learned a lot. I could go to Lowe's with hundreds of other people in that store, but I couldn't go to the local hardware store two blocks away. Um, stuff like that where. Um, by shutting businesses down, you're forcing everyone to go to one location as it is, which is, again, increasing the risk. Um, we're not acknowledging that if you can social distance in Walmart, you can social distance in the local hardware store. If you can social distance in Walmart, you can social distance in your local small business. You can um, social distance in your church if you can social distance yes. in Walmart. Yes, yes. It's about applying logic. It's about applying kind of basic common sense. But I think one of the underlying problems is the government knows that the average person doesn't know what to do. And I think that's kind of a testament to government schools. Um, They get the government education. And when the real world happens and a crisis like this hits, um, I can tell you the you know, um, the, uh, the, the, the circumference of a square or a circumference of a circle formula, but I can't tell you about how to social distance because I didn't learn basic common sense in school. This, this, this goes this, into a lot of how broken our, our education system is, but it also has to, it, this, this whole lockdown, this whole shutdown, whatever you want to call it, this pandemic, uh, it, it is truly speaks a testament to our culture. Libertarians yeah. are about fixing problems culturally and socially without yeah. without 
like saying, we need a law to fix this. We're not about speed bumps. We're about awareness. We're about advocating. When we have a culture where everybody is so plugged in, everybody is, our culture is, you know, everybody wins. Everybody gets a trophy for participating in the science fair. Everybody gets a trophy participating in, in T-ball. Let's teach about the circumference of this and let's teach them how, what trigonometry is before we teach them about, you know, how to do your taxes, which, you know, I know you're an expert on. Uh, yep. Let's teach them about, uh, you know, who was the king of Prussia in 1857 before we teach them who the local farming tycoon was. Let's teach Then if we, our culture built on that, our culture based on, you know, I remember I'm in the vaping industry. The -hmm. biggest thing that was happening in Congress in February was a bill to ban flavored e-liquid when all this coronavirus stuff should have been being talked about. Our governor in New York state called vaping an epidemic, but because of four people, because four people died, he called vaping an epidemic. And he said, even though it is safer than smoking, who cares? Let's ban it. His position on coronavirus back in February and early March was, it's not nearly the threat you guys are saying it is. <laughs> right. So and- we, we have this culture where we just tend to listen to the masters, no matter what they say. We tend to, our, our schools have bred people for obedience they haven't bred people to think for themselves. And that's the issue. That's kind of touching in what you're touching, kind of playing it. I'm just trying to play into what you were talking about there. Yep. And, and talking about education is a great one because I can loop it into my policy. Um, speaking of the federal government just sucking at what they do, um, I, I feel terrible for a lot of teachers because teachers are kind of pigeonholed into a, a job that they want to do. And they, they go in. Teachers right. are a lot right. like politicians. They get involved with teaching because they want to help kids and, you know, I got involved. I wanted to make a big change, make an impact and do something different. And then you get bogged down with all the extra bull crap. And, and it's similar for teachers. You know, you go in cause you want to help these kids. You want to, t- you know, educate the future and do your part. And then you get bogged down by restrictions and administration and teacher testing. And, and let's talk about the federal government and their education policies. Every time the federal government gets involved in education, it sucks. Uh, you know, Common Core was a failure. Standardized testing is a failure. No student gets left behind is a failure. Uh, teacher evaluations are a failure. Uh, there's more to come. But the, the reason is because, um, quite frankly, a lot of these bureaucrats and politicians never went to public school themselves. They went to a private school. Their kids go to private school. Um, they don't know anything about public school. They're not teachers. They haven't been inside of a public school. They don't know what goes on on a day-to-day basis. Mm-hmm. They're just passing laws based on feel-good um, you know, this will make us feel good. Our feelings will feel good if we do this. And then the other solution is, well, if we throw money, we're going to invest in it. We're going to invest in education because the average voter sees a dollar sign and thinks they care. And yeah. so that's yeah. up to us as the voters to say, well, okay, great. You're throwing a billion dollars at education. What are we getting out of it? It's kind of like you can't run the government like a business. I hate that saying. But an example would be I'm an accountant. I sit down with a client, okay? You own a um you own a uh, you own a small manufacturing company, okay? You come in and say, Dwayne, I want to invest in I'm gonna invest actually my own money, not taxpayer money, but I'm going to invest some money into streamlining my manufacturing process. And in doing so, it makes my process 30% more efficient. And I say, okay, you're going to spend a million dollars. This is the impact it has on your bottom line. 
you know, you're, you're getting more efficient workers. Um, you know, you're not over, you're not working as much overtime. So you're saving wages. Uh, the product has less errors. So you're saving in, in reshipments and refunds and it's done faster. So it, it, you're, you're making more in a shorter time. So you're going to see a, for a million dollars spent, you're going to see a $280,000 a year benefit. So in four years, you break even on this project. Good job. Congratulations. Well, when we invest, when they invest taxpayer dollars, there's no follow-up on that. Okay, hey, we invested a billion dollars in education. Where did it get us? Well, our test scores are still failing. Our, our, we're still dropping in the, in the worldwide rankings. Um, you know, we're not seeing an improvement in schools testing. We're not seeing an improvement in anything. Okay, well, throw another billion dollars at it. Well, that's not a solution. That's just, you know, that, that's like a blackjack table. It's yeah. like a blackjack table. Every time really they put is. money on the table, they expect to get paid off. Oh, wait, maybe I'll get better and get lucky next time. Maybe I'll get lucky this year. The more money I put on this, the, the better the result's going to be. It's not true. And by the right. way, uh, I know you agree with me. Um, we need to stop taxing people more. We need to stop spending more money on education because more yep. money is not the answer. More productivity Correct. is the answer. Correct. Lift the stupid restrictions that are on our teachers. Um, yes. I think an excellent thing to do, and this is this, you can go onto my website, guys. You could you could read my my position on this. I think in New York State, we need to get rid of the master's degree requirement. And I know there's a period of five years for teachers, you know, to get a master's degree after they're hired, but that just puts financial burden on teachers. But what it also does is open up the possibility for more teachers to apply. It, because more people are qualified if they just have a bachelor's degree. Thus, you can pick out the best candidate out of a much larger pool of individuals. It's a much more competitive market when you do it that way. Um, that's do you know why? Why is there a master's degree requirement for teachers? I'm assuming I because there are too many you're applying. I have a theory that may be absolutely incorrect, but I have a theory Mm -hmm. um, and it's a typical government move. And, and I could be completely incorrect in this. This could be wrong. So don't, if, if I have a few people that watch my podcast that don't like me and whenever I say something wrong, it is blasted in their fake website. Who cares? But, they can do it all they want. It's their freedom of speech. And we're, if, we cannot care all we want because. Well, that's I mean, American. I like it. It makes me feel welcome. I got people that watch everything I do, making sure I don't make a mistake. It makes me feel good. You know, they're, I feel like you know, even though I'm shut in and lonely and here by myself, they're here with me in spirit. <laughs> so um, this is completely a theory that I cannot prove. But I think that if you look at where a lot of teachers are coming from, they're coming from state schools. Um, like they're coming from, you know, like SUNY schools. I think it's a way to filter more money into state schools from the teachers. Mm. Um, so it's not about, so they say, well, we're going to pass this we're going to have more qualified teachers. They're going to have a master's degree. We're getting the best of the best. Mm. But I really think it's a way to filter money into state schools and into programs that would be struggling if you got rid of it. Um, it it's a way to essentially government forcing, it, it's government forcing businesses to be successful and it's government forcing programs to exist um, when uh, they don't uh, necessarily need to. That's, I, I can't prove that. There's no way to prove that. True. That's that's seemingly the case, and I say seemingly because we can't we can't come out and just say that is that's what it is. Uh, and, there, there, and there's and there's really no way to prove it, but other, no. it's it's just a gut feeling of the government 
essentially saying one thing, but they're, you know, they're intending something different. So, so my mother, is, my mother's a teacher. She still is a teacher. She actually teaches ninth and 12th grade English. Okay. My mother-in-law is a music teacher. She actually just recently retired before all of this happened. And my grandmother was the secretary for uh, the superintendent at a, uh, at a central of a central school district. And something growing up, of course, I heard about this all the time, not just student drama because I had my mom as my teacher. I also heard about the teacher drama. I got to heard who oh. all the asshole teachers were, you know, and, and, uh, you know, same, same with my mother-in-law, same with my grandmother. And, you know, I'm not going to say anybody's name. Don't worry if you're watching this, I'm not going to say your names, but anyway, uh, <laughs> What became increasingly clear to me was that when I was younger, there was a very large, when they made this requirement, there was a very large amount of people applying for a job to mm -hmm. be a teacher and they treated it like it was a bad thing. So they, they put that master's degree requirement on there to deter people from applying because they gave them a span of five years to get that master's degree if they got the job. So they deterred people from applying because now they have to worry about the financial burden of paying back a master's degree. But it also deterred, uh, it, it also made the pool much, much smaller because now these people know, um, now they know, oh, I shouldn't even bother going to get my degree in education because it's going to cost me a fortune and I'm not going to make enough money to pay it back. So I'm just not going to apply. The pool was so big, they wanted to shrink the pool. And because they shrunk the pool, you have less candidates for these teaching jobs. And you it's much harder to find the best candidate. I'm a manager of a business. Mm -hmm. When I'm hiring, I rather interview a thousand people than a hundred people. Yes, it's tiresome and it can get very tedious, but... I rather find the diamond in the rough rather than, you know, just the best guy out right. of a hundred. Right. You know, so that's, that's my take on it. That's what, but what you said, when you said it, it seemingly is they made that master's degree a requirement because most of these teachers are going to state schools. And these, and for those of you who are just tuning in, Dwayne had an excellent take on this for, for, going to state schools that way the state schools get more money because they're owed more money to the state and that i i never thought of it that way but now the wheels are the wheels are turning and it's clicking in my head i also i also think that it's a way to um manipulate numbers and i i agree it's a way to thin down the pool as well but if you really think about it wouldn't it be um i'm gonna sound like a progressive here for a second because i think it's funny too <laughs> But isn't it kind of uh, poverty shaming or insulting to people who can't afford to get an education? You know, they're not allowed to become teachers because they can't afford it. Uh, you'd think that out of a lot of these professions, teaching would be one that you want more people to come from all different walks of life so they can be role models and stuff. Yes. Um, stuff like that. But that's unintended consequences of government. Let's be honest. That's all the government does is, is ruin things because they're inefficient and terrible. But um, it's it's a lot of that stuff. If you look at it, it's just um, the government does one thing, and I'll use the tax code for an example. Uh, when the government, I do not support Bernie Sanders for president. That being said, a Bernie Sanders presidency means a lot for me and my company as someone who specializes in lowering tax burden as someone who specializes in 
uh, working with businesses to lower their tax burden, uh, someone who passes more taxes and more regulations. For someone like me, it's great because I can step in and say, hey, I'll save you on your taxes. For example, Obamacare, um, I was actually able to start my own company because of Obamacare. Um, mm -hmm. When it was passed, uh, Nancy Pelosi was quoted as saying, we have to pass this bill to see what's in it, which means she didn't do her job and read it. When it was passed, I actually read it. And I found a handful of loopholes in the uh, setup of Obamacare that businesses could exploit to avoid paying uh, mandatory insurance for 50 more employees. I found ways around it. I found things they can do. And so if you were a business with, you know, 55 employees, there's things you can do and there's ways around doing certain things to make sure that um, you didn't get hit with the mandatory providing insurance. And now you're thinking, well, Dwayne, that's terrible. Why would you? And it's because a lot of those businesses either had to go bankrupt or give, you know, not provide insurance and do these loopholes. So I was actually able to start my own company exploiting these loopholes and figuring out ways around it. Um, so a progressive type uh, president helps me financially for the short term until the impending financial crisis that they implement uh, sends this country into Venezuela. But um, you know, for in the short term, it would help me because I'd have a, a larger client base, if you will. Yeah, I think yeah. you touched on something there very, very important about progressive ideas. And I've been saying this for a while, that progressives have the tendency to look for a solution that is immediate. Uh, they yep. look for small band-aids for big problems. And that's, it is, go ahead, it sorry. Is great, it is great short, like the stimulus package, for an example. Um, when it was first talked about, it was so, and if it was first introduced by somebody who was very progressive, and I forget, I forget the congressman's name, but it was, the idea was so popular that Mitch McConnell was like, oh, and that turned into a very small bandaid for a very large issue. And as we know that, I mean, that helped out for a very small amount of time and, here we are what five weeks later and yep. we still don't we, we we still can't go to work we still can't go to support our friends business it, it is it, some of us you know are losing businesses some of us are losing businesses and i don't think a lot of people realize that especially those people who support the lockdown especially those people who who are are a fan of it who like the idea um well a lot of my friends that are the biggest proponents of the lockdown um, aren't the ones owning small businesses, aren't the ones um, with families, aren't the ones uh, – let me – I'm trying to say this without offending people if they watch this, but uh, some of my most outspoken people that support the lockdown are dependent on others to survive. Yes. So they don't have a family to raise. They don't have kids. They don't have people. Or there are a few that do have families and they're behind the, if you go outside, you're killing my grandma crowd. So mm -hmm. it's that. It, I see two basic mentalities. I think, and, and, 
I think socialism is most popular or socialist ideas and those small band-aid, big problem ideas. I think those are most popular among college students or the younger crowd. And you know that to be a true because Nancy Pelosi was like, let's lower the voting age to 16. Which, which makes sense if you think about it, because when, you know, you're, you're, you're immersed in socialism, so to speak, your entire life until you get out of college, because you got uh, government run schools. Mm-hmm. And you think they're great because no one's telling you they're not because why would anyone tell you they're not great because you're in them. And then you go to college and it's the same thing. You got these professors who, uh, uh, I went to a state school myself, so they're so getting paid by the state, they're state employees. They're not going to shit on the government. They're government employees themselves. So, um, rarely do you find a, a right leaning, you know, college professor and they all tend to be philosophical thinkers and idea idea thinkers, not money thinkers. And so, uh, you know, until you get in the real world, you see a lot of government-run programs that you think work great because you don't know better. And then you get in the real world and learn that the government is a useless organization. I, I want to give a, a shout-out to my, uh, my professors in college who were very, very good um, at trying to – trying to without – I went to a state school. And so when I went to school for broadcasting, I had some phenomenal professors. Some of them were not so phenomenal. Um, but we'll, let me just go on. The, I want to start with the not so phenomenal one real quick. We had a project where we were supposed to take a camera and go interview refugees uh, in Syracuse during that time where we had all those Middle Eastern refugees coming over here. And you had a lot of people who were against that. You had a lot of people that were for it. And it was part of your project. And if you didn't do it, you would fail. This same professor asked us if we would be okay with having a white supremacist like Ben Shapiro come speak at the college. And I was, so we were, you know, I'm not, I'm not a conservative. I'm not progressive. I'm somewhere in the middle. Mm -hmm. Still, I thought it was outrageous to have somebody who, who is teaching hundreds and hundreds of people. And forcing them to to film something that they don't agree with and portray it in a light that they don't agree with. And I don't, you know, I, I think we should be supporting refugees. I that's that's me, that's my opinion. However, you know, it shouldn't be forced on everybody else in the entire class. Mm-hmm. In that particular time, that was a touchy subject because of course we want to help people, but at the same time, and just to touch on that, guys, you know, at the time, that's what I supported. I'm a little bit different on it now, but let's talk about those professors who, who did their best. Because I, I remember, uh, for, especially for my my studio professors, they used to, especially because we were d- learning broadcasting, we were learning journalism. They were trying their hardest to try to tell us not to be one-sided, not to be reactionists, to be Walter Cron- Cronkites, and just give the news tell people the way it is, you know, and I, I, I admire, I admire those guys and shout out to those guys. Um, but overall we have a very leftist style, very progressive college education system. When you go to the public libraries in these colleges, every single book that's for sale on the outside of this college that they're trying to promote is written by Hillary Clinton, or it's written by Joe Biden or Bernie Sanders you will not find a single Ben Shapiro book or a Steven Crowder book or a Donald Trump book in that library, period. 
I think that they should be sold right next to each other. Mm -hmm. Yeah, <laughs> that's one thing. That's one thing we're struggling with lately is uh, both sides aren't willing to hear other people's side. Um, we're not willing to hear conflicting or, or disagreeing points. And if you hear it, you automatically go into this screech fit where like, God forbid, someone doesn't agree with you. Who do you think you are? Um, yeah, hearing, yeah. hearing opposing viewpoints doesn't hurt you. I mean, I have my stances on things. And, and if you disagree, you're allowed to. You're, you're allowed to have an opinion. You're allowed freedom of speech. You're allowed to think what you want. You're allowed freedom of thought. Um, I, I can't control your mind. I can't control you how you think. I can't tell you how to think. So um, one thing this country does struggle with is we don't listen to opposing viewpoints. And um, we feel also that because we need to be acknowledged and embraced at all times, so do other people. And it's kind of conflicting. So what I mean by that is if someone is coming to speak on campus and I don't agree with them, what I do, I don't go. Problem sure. Sure. like doesn't matter. Or you get yourself a microphone and you ask them a question and don't scream at them. Right, or you ask them a question, but I mean, I would lean towards I, I wouldn't go. Um, actually, at Fredonia State, when I was there, I remember vaguely um, wishing, looking back, I wish I would have done more when this happened, but there was a guy who traveled to SUNY schools and was anti, because I was uh, in college in 2005 to nine. It's when same-sex marriage was coming out and becoming like the big social issue of the time. And so this guy would go to campuses and um, speak out against uh, same-sex marriage. That was his big uh, his big thing. Um, and I remember Fredonia State issuing a essentially a, a, a thing saying, hey, we don't agree with what he's saying, but we're a state school paid by state funds. We have to abide by, you know, First Amendment. If you don't agree with what he says, don't go. And so what happened, because Fredonia State, big music program, big theater program, uh, a strong um, homosexual population, uh, people did go. And there was, you know, I think uh, the drum, there was like a drum circle. There were people singing. And it was like a solidarity thing. And uh, they kind of drowned them out. And it was kind of cool to see that um, people came together and said, um, you're allowed to meet and do your thing. We're going to do the same thing at the same time and show that we outnumber you. We're, we're stronger than you and we are um, more united than you. And it was pretty cool to see. There wasn't riots. There wasn't demands for him to not be on campus. There wasn't um, people screaming and, and, and wearing vagina hats and, and yelling and screaming. Uh, it was people who came together and said, you know, we are stronger together and, and we're losing that. It's becoming, um, we're losing the kind of um, ability to allow someone to have a different opinion. It's, I don't want him to speak. Right. Right. I don't want to see what he has to say. And then I have to get equally ridiculous in my protest. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's, it's not the best way to handle that kind of stuff. You're, you're very right. And I think it, it is quite sad to see, you know, because modern day Democrats are not Democrats. Right. And so there's a lot of socialists calling themselves Democrats. 
Um, or there's a lot of Democrats who have fallen down the socialist path. Democrats or progressives used to be used to be the party that would lift people up. They used to try to lift people up and embrace diversity rather than shaming somebody for not not you know you're white. How dare you be white? You know, rather than that, they used to be, they used to be the party that used to say it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what color you are. Now it is, you should feel bad for well, being white or you should feel bad for being simple. American. And the, the reason for that is quite simple. I, I again, say this as a politician. Uh, the reason for that is because they can manipulate a voter base based on feelings. So if you go out to the, if you go to your, what, where do you live? What's the nearest city for you? I live in Oneida, New York. So the closest city would probably be Utica. So you go to Utica. And what, what about uh, you go to downtown Utica and you say, um, what's your opinion of the Democratic Party? Because uh, Utica tends to lean blue. You're going to get, um, oh, they care about us. They care about us. They're, they're, they care. Again, progressive is greed, selfishness, and ignorance pretending to care about someone else. But are faked as compassion. Well, but they care about us. They, they want to help us. They want to help minorities. Um you know, they talk about reparations. They talk about canceling student loan debt. What that really is, is buying your vote. Um, they're essentially manipulating you based on feeling and... Um, because they never do anything. Never do. Well, but what they're doing is um, they want to say, you know, we're going to give black people reparations and then they're going to vote for us the rest of their lives uh, because they're going to feel like they owe us back. Um it's a way to manipulate a crowd of people or a group of people into thinking you're caring for them while actually taking uh, massive advantage of them. So um, that's kind of where the Republicans, they kind of do the, they don't do it the same. They have their way of manipulating people by saying, you know, immigrants are going to kill your, you know, legal immigrants are going to kill your family. Uh, you know, they're going to come and take your businesses away, yada, yada, yada. Mm -hmm. um, but the, the Dems tend to lead, um, they're leading the marketing in being the compassionate care for everyone party when really it's just the easiest way to buy your vote and kick the can down the road. Um, right. They don't really care about you. They don't really believe in equality. They don't believe in anything other than shut up and vote for me. Here's some money. And then they can then manipulate your voting by saying, hey, if you don't vote for us, your money's going to get taken away. You know, oh, they're going to come and take away your your, your free stuff. Right. And right. so that, that solidifies, it triggers your emotion, and it solidifies you voting for them. I, I don't I, – I agree. I agree when it comes to people like Hillary Clinton, and I do – and I think Bernie has gone down that path. Um, but I'm not, I don't think that applies to everybody. And there are definitely people who are more centrist left, and there's definitely people who are more centrist right Mm -hmm. uh, just like I think Tulsi Gabbard is a good example. She's very anti-war. She's very she's very much for the de decriminalization of drugs, and that's where I agree with her. When it comes to her mm -hmm. economic policies, I don't agree with her very much at all. Right. Um, and then you have people like Rand Paul who are essentially saying the same thing, but I don't agree with them when it comes to same-sex marriage, and I don't agree with them when it comes to you know, like sex worker rights. I, I don't. Um, you know, she's very anti anti-gear marriage he says it offends him but i do agree with him when it comes to on his uh his foreign policy and when it does come to 
his economic policies. I agree with him there. Um, and I think that, you know, thank God for Justin Amash. I know that you were looking to take that seat, but <laughs> being yeah. the first libertarian in Congress and all. Oh yeah. But thank God for Justin Amash where he's pulling that line. He's pulling that spotlight to him and he's saying, look, there is another way. And I was reading, I think he interviewed with Cato and Cato asked him, you know, are there other um, Congress people who, who would join the libertarian party? And he said, absolutely there are, but just not right now, not with everything going on with the coronavirus. Everybody's got to have yeah, their own parties there, right now. I think there's a lot that can come in and, and help us. I, I think that you're starting to see it in them, in, in, in the elected officials too, just the the fatigue of the constant fighting. Um, I think most of it's for show, to be honest with you. But um, people that actually want to get something done, you can make more of a statement by leaving the party, getting your microphone, getting your name out there, getting what you have to say being said, and then going from there. Um, it's, it's, it's a great way to do it. I mean, right now, if you're a Democrat and you're a middle-of-the-road Democrat, um, you're seeing AOC, you're seeing Bernie, you're seeing Hillary, you're seeing Obama still getting a lot of coverage, and you're not getting anything. But if you leave the party, you're going to get the microphone phones you're going to get the ability to say what you have to say um so i'd like to see you do it whatever you want to say that's what's great about a third party a third party presents the opportunity to actually represent the people instead of representing this half or that half they represent everybody because there are democrats that do want to keep their guns and there are republicans that want to legalize cannabis so the third party is great because we get to pull the majority. We don't get to just pull right. small. But if, if, if you're a Democrat and there's an AR ban on the floor, an AR ban bill on the floor, and you vote against it, you're going to be ostracized by the Democrats. Mm-hmm. So you can't. You're stuck. You can't speak out. Um, that's kind of where you're facing the massive issues is that um, you're, you're forced to vote for me you don't agree on because if you do, you're going to lose. You may lose the next election. They may not endorse you. You know, the, the person that buys your, you know, the person, the, the, the corporation or wealthy donor that buys you may not donate to you. and You may lose your reelection and all you care about is winning elections. Um, so a lot of these politicians have a good opportunity to kind of show what they either. Are you there to win elections or are you there to stand and fight? So I think in the next couple of years, you'll see a lot of people defect. Yeah. So we've, we've talked a lot about the infighting in this, this, this you know, wolf in the, the hens, I forget the, the hen house. You know, we've talked a lot about that. Let's talk about the fun stuff. Now let's talk about weed. Let's talk about guns <laughs> in Congress. Just so just for the people to hear you in Congress, I know you support cannabis legalization. To mm-hmm. what extent do you support cannabis legalization and how would you approach taxing it? Are you for no taxing at all? Or are you from some taxes or a lot of taxes? Uh, I would treat it just like you treat uh, any other industry, like any other farming industry. So a farmer grows uh, cannabis. He harvests that cannabis. He sells it to the distributor. There would be taxes based on that, based on regular income tax. Mm -hmm. But I don't see a need for any special taxation on it. Um, Treat it like any other product that's being developed and grown and sold simple as that. Um, as far as how legal, same thing. Uh, I'm going to take the Larry Sharp 
stance on that and regulate it like onions. Uh, same thing. It's a crop is a crop is a crop. It's a plant. A farmer plants it. He harvests it. He sells it. Uh, problem solved. Uh, just same thing. I, I do believe that you know driving under the influence is is should be illegal. So <laughs> there, there's that. Um, and I do believe you need to be 18 to buy it just because, um, you know, it is a substance that can be a little bit different. Um, but other than that, I, I don't really foresee a need to go crazy and government's going to screw this up anyways. But, um, you know, anything you do, uh, it's going to help farming communities. It's going to help the small, it's going to help a lot of small rural areas in my district. A lot of farmers are struggling to stay afloat which has actually turned into other fights. So where a lot of people in my district are fighting over is windmills. Uh, farmers with a lot of land are putting windmills on their land because that's helping them stay in business, it's helping them keep their operation going. Uh, this would provide a better solution. Uh, Kemp and Han or, pardon me, cannabis and hemp would allow them to add another crop to their portfolio that would allow them to uh, you know, essentially revitalize their small town because not only is there money in selling it, but someone needs to harvest it, they need to uh, distribute it, they need to transport it, and stuff like that as well, which would mean uh, more opportunities for more small towns. There's also a massive problem attached to it. When we're talking about cannabis, it's, it's, it's almost been an excuse to keep cops busy. With the, yeah, the drug is illegal. And I talk to cops. I talk to cops. Every single cop I've I've spoken to, every single one, I haven't heard a single one oppose cannabis legalization because they're tired of arresting people for it. They're tired of needing to do paperwork. And, and one of them spent, explained it to me this way. He said, it costs more for me to confiscate it and do the paperwork and process the ind individual than it does for the individual to actually pay the fine for having it. Yeah, it doesn't <laughs> so surprise me. You're wasting taxpayer dollars arresting potheads. Yep. Um, when, it, when it also comes to – I like how you agree with Larry on that. I do as well. But I also like to remind people, especially I want to talk directly to the libertarians who may be watching. When we're talking about cannabis – I am always freedom first when it comes to anything, firearms, cannabis, name it. I'm about freedom first, the, the right to use, the right to, to talk, the right to sell. Um, a lot of people in the Libertarian Party might be pounding away too, too, a little too much on the we can't tax the issue. Um, I think there has to be some sort of tax. I don't like a 20% tax. I'm in the vaping industry. I don't like a 20% tax. We have a 20% tax. I don't think it should be that high. But a simple sales tax, just like we would tax yeah. alcohol, we should tax Sales alcohol. tax is fine. My concern with that is you're seeing it, and I believe Colorado, when they implemented it, it was still cheaper on the black market. Um, it which was. Is, it is what it is, but um, I, I view it as this. Uh, it's going to still be out there on the black market and, and competing costs is competing costs. Um, I'm not, a, I'm not opposed to a sales tax, just like any other product that gets sold by groceries and stuff like that. Um, and basic income tax, but I wouldn't want to see like a, a sin tax or an additional tax. I just think doing that is it's going to get pushed onto the consumer and it's just going to be a nightmare. It's going to leave the black market where it is. Um, yeah. and it's going to open up a lot of confusion and anger. Um, I, I just want to treat it like the crap that it is. For, for me, and I agree with you. And and when people complain about – people have made that point to me. Well, it's going to be cheaper on the black market than it is going to be in the regulated market. Well, I don't I – don't, I, I, I look at it this way. If you have a buddy who brews his own beer, 
He has mm-hmm. got a little micro brew in his, in his garage. It's probably going to cost you less to buy beer from him than it will to go, you know, buy a six pack of Bud Light from uh, the grocery store. And I have no problem with that. I got no nope. problem. Once it's legal, once nobody's getting arrested, once we can actually tax the, regu- the tax regulated sale, which most people will go to, most people will go to a dispensary because they want to so bad. It doesn't matter if somebody's selling it um, on the side. It'll just be like a guy selling his friend uh, some beer out of his microbrew. Be just like you know a guy selling moonshine. It, it, it's yep. it's a gray thing. It's a it's a gray area. It's really not that big a deal when it, when we when we get down to that. Um, right. Let's talk about Second Amendment. Mm-hmm. Um, in Central New York, in in my district, we have a lot of farmers. There are places in my district where it'll take cops forty minutes to get to them. Uh, if someone breaks into their house, they don't have time to sit around and wait for the cops. They're going to use any force necessary to get that intruder out mm-hmm. in Western New York. What would you say to those who are in Rochester, who are in Buffalo, uh, Western New Yorkers, why the second amendment is important and also why or how you would do your utmost to defend it. So, the problem you struggle we, we struggle with is we fail to understand where um justin amash recently spoke out about the armed protesters in michigan and a lot of libertarians got mad about it because of what he said mm-hmm. but he has an actual very very solid point uh what we struggle to do is understand the opposing viewpoint and the guy out from the guy from the middle of nowhere where it, like you said takes 30 minutes for police to respond um he doesn't understand why the guy who lives in inner city buffalo who has seen firsthand gun violence um is afraid of guns or is opposed to firearms and he doesn't understand that disconnect so um i i'm pro to a uh, mainly for a couple reasons number one it keeps politicians honest uh but also number two Again, it's it's they're tools. They're they're a piece of equipment. They're they're a non-sentient being. My firearms don't have rational thought. They don't have the ability to make a decision. Um, my concealed carry is right next to me here, and, and it hasn't moved since I started this podcast. It's still right there. It's yeah. it's not gonna move. It, it relies uh, something behind it. So um, when I talk to these people who are anti-gun, I explain to them that when you hear gun violence. Uh, the, the, the anti-gunners want you to hear the first word. Um, I want you to hear the second word. Um, you know, people say, well, how do you feel about gun violence? I oppose all violence, uh, not just one with a firearm. So uh, in being pro-2A, you know, the, the other people say that, well, you're, if you're pro-gun, you love seeing children shot in schools. That, that's actually incorrect. Um, I understand it is. Um, but I understand I understand that um, there are people that are afraid and concerned and upset, but the solution isn't a ban because bans don't work. The solution is breaking apart the underlying societal problems and understand why that person is resulting to doing or re- resorting to doing what they're doing. Um, you can ban guns, you can ban ARs, you can use a different type of firearm, you can ban guns. They're still gonna exist in circulation because they have lifespans of over like you know over a couple like over a dozen years. So um, everything you do, these laws that you're going to pass, they're still going to be out there. They're still going to exist. It's not going to work. So it's time we actually have an intelligent conversation on what we can do to break down gun violence in ways that we can actually accomplish. 
Um, and that's, you know, focusing on bullying, fo focusing on mental health evaluations and the stigma around mental health illness or pardon me, mental illness, um, certain things like that. Cause you're never going to solve gun violence by focusing on the gun and not the violence. The violence is always going to be there. Uh, like I said earlier, I'm pro 2A because growing up on a farm, I guess they're, they're tools, they're, they're equipment, they're, they're just uh, there, they exist. Um, they're, they're not able to do anything other than exist. Something that I don't know why anybody hasn't made the point of in the assembly or in Congress uh, or in Senate or, or basically any form of government, nobody's made the point at least that I've heard of that, especially for those of us who live in rural communities, we, we, especially in rural communities, we should never ever have to have gun laws applied to us. Mm -hmm. We have always traditionally never had a problem. Statistically, we are virtually non-existent on the map of gun on the scope of gun violence. And when it comes to the cities, I get it. I understand. However, if if you didn't stop, if you if you stopped banning them, if you stopped applying heavy restrictions, the problem would get better. It wouldn't get worse. Prohibition does nothing. And we've talked about that. We've talked about it with marijuana. We've talked about it with vaping. Prohibition does nothing. That applies to firearms. Mm -hmm. And when you don't allow people the ability to protect themselves, they will do they will go find any means necessary, even if it's illegal to protect themselves. And then because it is illegal, they are more likely to use them because it's not regulated. Right. Um, well, that, but also uh, the stigma around firearms is that um, I, 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 someone tagged me in something. It, it was terrible. It was on Facebook, and one of my friends tagged me in it as a joke. But it was some uh, Facebook page uh, it was like feminism today or something. They had a picture of a guy that was at a rally. He had a fake gun. Uh, it was made of wood and, and they were kind of, all these people were kind of making fun of him and, and talk about how like, Oh, that's excessive. He doesn't need that. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of the fear around guns. And this is where, again, the libertarian, as I mentioned earlier, the libertarian and pro gun people have an education issue. Uh, they're not educating people that, um, certain bands that they want to do and certain laws that they're, placing are only banning certain uh customized guns not all guns so for example the m14 uh with the wooden stock versus the uh pistol grip it's the same gun same caliber same bullet rate same accuracy same exact thing one has a pistol grip one doesn't one's banned one's not the band isn't actually solving anything it, it's just banning things that look scary but they're actually by definition no different um you know, for example, um, you know, people, uh, one of my friends has an AR and I, I'm going to probably say this wrong. Maybe I'm not, I want to say he has a, 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 like a, um, it looks like an M16, but it's only a 22. And so, uh, it, it's, it's a custom build. It's kind of a funny looking thing, but he built it and, uh, he showed it to one of our friends that's really anti-gun, and he's like, "Well, that that's that's terrifying. No one should have this. This is this is a weapon of war." And he goes, "Well, fun fact. He goes, it's actually like a hunting rifle. A twenty-two is still. I mean, I don't want to get shot with a twenty-two, but um, you know, it is that's something. 
But um, he so he pulled out his concealed carry. He carries a 45 and says, "Fun fact: You don't want to ban my pistol, which is stronger and way more deadly than the one you're afraid of." Um, and it's just that that lack of understanding how firearms work and that lack of understanding. This is so, the way I like to explain it to people. If you take a Ford Focus and then put the body of a Dodge Challenger on it, it does not make the Ford Focus all of a sudden a, a, a muscle car. It doesn't make it a sports car. It's still yeah. a Ford Focus. It just Perfect. looks faster. It looks scarier. looks meaner. Just because an AR-15 looks scary, just because it, it, it's, it's black and it's got these really gun metal it's it's made out of gun metal and all that just because it's you know made out of metal and not wood does not mean it's any more dangerous than that wood weapon and some people will use that excuse like well by that definition we should ban those as well and then that's when you start approaching total infringement of our of our second so what you're saying is putting a spoiler on my 1994 honda civic doesn't make it a race car no i disagree <laughs> but um, no. not, but but you're absolutely right. Just by doing adding something like that doesn't take away from what it is. That's actually a very good analogy because you're absolutely correct. I can put spinning rims on my Dodge Caravan. Um, it's still a Dodge Caravan. Um, you know, and it's just it still does what it needs to do. It gets from A to B. Mm -hmm. Um, but it's it's about fear. It's about triggering emotion. About triggering fear. And then politicians doing what they need to do as fast as possible so they can pat themselves on the back. I, I view gun control measures as another form of safe security blanket measures. Um, let's be honest. It's, it's, you only hear about gun control when uh, white mothers in the suburbs get upset because a bunch of white people got shot at a school. Um, yeah, they don't yeah. hear about black on black violence. They don't care about black people getting killed. It's mainly they don't want to admit that they're suburbs. They have to... Uh, progressives, they don't want to admit that their suburbs might make them have to think and have an, edu an educated conversation with their children about staying safe. Um, they're in this bubble of safety and progressivism. They don't want to admit that, um, you know, violence can happen to them and, and these things can happen to them. It's simple as that. That bubble popped the coronavirus. This, yeah. this coronavirus has done some great things for our culture. And, and I think and it's done some horrible things as well. Let's start with the good things. The good things are my progressive friends who hate guns, hate them, want to ban all of them. All of a sudden, now they want a gun because they're scared that somebody's going to break into their house during this pandemic. Oh, man, I thought you were afraid of guns. I thought you wanted to ban guns. Well, you know, then I really got to thinking about it. And, you know, I'm going to need something in my house to protect me if the cops want to take me and my family out. Or they want to, you know, if somebody is going to break into my house and the cops are too busy handling some other catastrophe because this pandemic's going on. Well, that's what we've been saying this entire time. Right. This entire time we've been saying the Second Amendment is essential for reasons like this, <laughs> for reasons like the coronavirus pandemic. Now we yep. talk about capitalism and we talk about socialism. And when we compare the two, uh, we, when we use socialist policies like we did with the stimulus package or when, you know, everybody or unemployment, PPE, I mean, some of them, are, they do, they do, yes, help, but short term, they don't always help. And now we're furthering and we're going deeper and deeper down into the rabbit hole of, uh, 
the debt just keeps climbing. We are hurting civil liberties each and every single day. And, and, and the American dream, the American freedoms that we used to have are slowly, slowly going away. And, and it's all based on, it's all based on give an inch, take a mile. And it's all based on fear. So what you have is, um, how do I put this? Uh, well, you know, as a gun owner, this is my favorite thing. Well, as a gun owner, I don't see a need for uh, you to own an assault rifle. Okay, well, I don't recall asking for what you think I needed. Um, I don't think I asked you what I need to own. As you know, and I I often counter with that. I usually say something stupid like, you know, as someone who owns maybe owns an AR, I don't recall asking for your opinion when I bought it. So I don't think it matters. I'm not telling you what car to drive. So yeah. why do you care? And but that's where it starts to say, oh well, we're we're only gonna do this. We're only gonna do this. It's only gonna be this. It's only gonna be this. And it slowly but surely erodes it, um, which is why you got to stop it when it is. Um, same thing with taxation. So what they do with taxes is, oh, we're only going to add a 1% sales tax to this one thing here on this thing because it's only 1%. Um, but then next thing you look down and you're paying you know, 85 different taxes on everything you do because they nickel and dimed you. Um, it's simple as that. And so that's why people need to kind of hold steady on certain things, because if you don't within a couple of years, you know, 10, 15 years, it's, it's no longer the same. Well, Dwayne, we've been doing this for about an hour and 18 minutes. Now yep. we're going to wrap up here, but before we do, I just want to give you the floor, tell the yep. hundreds of people that watch this, why they should vote for you, why yep. you are best for Congress and what you bring to the table as New York's 27th congressional districts, new congressman. So there's three reasons. There's three reasons why you need to vote for me. Uh, number one, uh, the red and blue teams have done absolutely nothing for anyone but themselves and their donors. Uh, never ending war. We just passed $25 trillion in debt. Uh, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over and expecting different results. You keep putting these red and blue politicians in office, expecting that you're going to be happier. Uh, they're going to fix the economy. They're going to fix this. They're going to do that. And, and it's not happening. Um, at the very least, you can send a message by protesting voting for me which is one reason. Uh, number two, we, we put these career politicians in office that have no idea what they're doing other than being career politicians and winning popularity contests. By putting someone with actually a tried and true resume of succeeding in the real world and in the private sector, um, you actually put in a, a uniquely qualified individual there. And lastly, uh, why you should vote for me is strictly because this could potentially kickstart a massive a revolutionary change across the country. If uh, I win this election, um, the media coverage of me will be insurmountably beneficial to the Libertarian Party and to this district because every single complaint this district has, I will be on every uh, big news station wondering, you know, what the hell's a Dwayne Whitmer and how did you win this race? How did some third party stick it to the red and blue teams? Uh, so it's our way of kind of generating momentum and allowing people to know that we're pissed off and we're kind of sick of being doormats and being pushed over. Dwayne Whitmer, everybody. 
when's it when is the election for you Dwayne? i know you uh, have my special election. is my special is june 23rd june 23rd everybody vote for Dwayne whitmer and then again in the general election on november 3rd thank you everybody very much for attending the freedom first live stream and podcast thanks for coming Dwayne. hey thank you have a good one everybody